Welcome to the Student of the Game Fire Podcast with your host, Danny B. Today's guest is Dale Jenkins, a 41-year veteran of the fire service. Dale retired from the Houston Fire Department as a senior captain on Ladder 7. He continues to teach to this day on various topics including forcible entry, search, and ventilation. If you've ever wanted to know what you need to be great at this profession, Dale believes it's passion and drive. With that being said, I present Mr. Dale Jenkins. So I got in the uh, Houston Fire Department uh, because I had I grew up in the country and uh, I rodeoed with uh, a couple firemen up from Central Texas and uh, I'm sorry here <laughs> okay and uh, anyway uh, one day I had a job in Houston and uh, I heard them hiring firefighters in Houston so. I went to my boss the next day and said I couldn't give a two-week notice. I was going to go be a firefighter. So I quit, went to Houston, filled out some paperwork, and was uh, amazed when they told me they may call and may never call. So I had to go back the next day and get my job back. So it took six months. And uh, uh, did I? You're still good. Okay. I lost your video. Uh Anyway, so it took six months, and they called, and the rest is kind of history. I mean, uh, I, I got in not really knowing what to expect, and, uh, man, it was just uh, – I, I was so blessed. God had control of my entire career, and uh, I could probably write a book about how he got me to Fire Station 7, um, and uh, – but uh, – I went to Sevens uh, right off the out of the academy, and it was the busiest fire station in Houston. And uh, we made lots of fires and uh, worked with just incredible firefighters. And I knew after the first day I was there, we made two fires. I knew whatever those guys had is what I wanted. Um, and so um, I'm trying to get you back here oh no okay uh, if you want look, we, we, we can take a quick pause that way you can get the video back okay can we do that yeah yeah so you can you can work on oh, that hang right on now. I, I, I figured it out now I'm, hey i'm good thing i was better at fighting fire than i am on the computer <laughs> um i'm not going to touch another button uh okay so my first day at sevens we made two uh, good fires and uh and then I was hooked. So then when we got back to the station that night, I saw what the the guys were just ate up with it. Man, they were all top notch professionals, passionate, uh, had pride in what they did, and uh, and my whole career would have been totally different if I'd have gone to some other station, some okay. somewhere that that wasn't. I probably would have retired as a Walmart breeder because it was that passion that they instilled in me from day one. Uh, they set a super high standard. And, uh, and you had to meet it to work at that station. And, uh, and fortunately for the rest of my career, for the, uh, except for one little glitch, I always was able to get those crews like that mm -hmm. and, uh, and work with guys that were just passionate, you know, uh, the kind of guys you'd want to show up at your house if your family needed help. 
Right. And so um, that's kind of how I got in. Um, but it was all God orchestrated. Absolutely. So. Okay. Um, now, when you got on Houston, what was the culture like back then regarding pride, training, cause, and camaraderie? Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, in, uh, I, I never, ever had to work outside my district for the first 11 or 13 years of my career. I, I was a firefighter at Sevens for three years, never worked outside my district, which involved four fire stations. Okay. And so um, then when I promoted to driver uh, called chauffeurs back then, I drove ladder seven for nine years. And so I never, I didn't really know what the rest of Houston was like. Okay. And so everybody worked under the same chief and he set the standard as high as it could go. And he demanded that you, you fit that standard or you just didn't work in that district. And we made lots of fires. And uh, that was during that time. Well, actually it was on the tail end of that time. They called American burning when mm-hmm. New York and everybody was, uh, and so uh, he just, I, I didn't know there was anything else. I thought everybody in the city of Houston was like the firefighters I fought fire with in District 7. And uh, then I promoted the captain in 91, and I was in for a rude awakening. Uh, <laughs> I was on a new shift. And uh, I went to Station 25, which is just like three miles down the road, uh, made lots of fires with, with those crews, and they were part of our district. But I was on a new shift. We went from three shifts to four. And to, to put that new shift together, they had to uh, – every station had to give a trade-in. Okay. And so I ended up with three firefighters from the outskirts of Houston that nobody wanted if that kind of tells you anything. Okay. Yeah, you couldn't push them in a burning building. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, I was absolutely dumbfounded. I, I never thought anybody could wear the uniform and not be like the guys in District 7. And, and, there, and don't get me wrong, there were other districts around the city that were top-notch, but not that I ran with, and certainly not on the new shift. Um, you know, we, you and me uh, talked about your new promotion to, well, uh, not a new, but to senior firefighter mm-hmm. <clears throat> that that's such a critical part of any crew having that senior man. And on a new shift, there was no senior man. I literally, as a, as a new captain, I had to teach guys how to wash wheels and mop floors. Um, and uh, so anyway, that was a, a learning experience. That was a learning curve. And uh, it um, it took nine, I was at station 25 for nine years, made lots of fires, but I never could get a solid crew. Uh, okay. as you can probably imagine, maybe not, uh, as an officer, when you make guys do what they don't want to do, you don't get a reputation for being a nice officer. <laughs> and, uh, and I got, uh, there was a name they called me and, uh, so nobody, you know, the sad thing was even good firefighters, they just heard the rumors about the captain and they didn't want to come work for him. And uh, so it was tough for nine years. And then I transferred to station 46, which was about three miles down the road. I, I had drove the pumper there as a new uh, 
chauffeur uh, initially and uh, went there. It had a, uh, now station 25 only had an engine and an ambulance. Okay. And uh, in Houston, you take the, we handle all EMS also. And uh, at station 46, it had like five or six apparatus at the time, a chief, a ladder truck, a pumper, an ambulance, uh, a medic unit. It might have had two ambulances. Real busy fire station. But there you had senior men. And that yeah. senior man made, I mean, from there, the rest of my career, it was it was kind of like it was initially at Sevens. I got back with guys that loved the job and uh, were passionate about it, loved to train and uh, loved to make fires and do a good job. And so the rest of my career was good. It was just a nine-year hitch, but it made me a better officer. Okay. Okay. So how would you say the experience – at station seven when, when you arrived, uh, how did that mold you into the officer that you were back then? Oh, it, it had everything to do with the officer. I was, it, it set the standard. <clears throat> I mean, that was just it. Our chief was Carl John hooker. Not many people wanted to work for him. They called him the hook, but he didn't accept. He did, did not accept mediocrity. You came into district seven and you were going to do the job or you, he, you, <laughs> Hey, he would transfer back then. Things were different, but he could transfer somebody just at the stroke of a pen. He, he'd walk down and say, you no longer work here. You know, go to this station. You okay. don't fit in. And, uh, it was such a high standard and I really didn't have anything to go by. I told you, I rodeoed with two firemen from central Texas and it was totally different there. They talked about how much they slept and got to eat. And if the fire came in, they, I mean, it was a small departments. So it was totally different in Houston. And, uh, and after I'm telling you the first night I was there, I knew whatever the guys had, I wanted it. And it was that pride and just, uh, they loved doing the job and being good at it. Mm -hmm. And, that set the standard for the rest of my 41 years. Uh, everybody at that station had a vested interest in bringing me up to speed. I was a weak link as a rookie. And so, you know, they just, it was tr train, drill, train, drill, and it was just constant. And uh, we had an incredible chauffeur on the engine. And uh, he taught me all the little idiosyncrasies of being a, a pump operator that aren't in books. And, uh, right. And uh, everybody at that station, and, and I'm sure it was driven by our officers, but uh, everybody at that station had contingency plans on when things went wrong. We didn't only train and drill for when things were going right, but you always, you know, whether you busted a hose or ran over a couple and got stuck in the duels or even uh, back in those days, uh, your pump, your discharge handles were held together with a cotter pin and a pin inside there above your pump. Okay. And a lot of times, and we made lots of fires, so those engines got used a lot. But a lot of times that cotter pin would fall out. And you, the, you know, if you didn't know what to do, you were dead in the water. But okay. those guys, uh, hey, it really separated those crews that I worked with from uh, those that didn't you know, that had nice captains that didn't take them out to drill and train because when they, you know, when things go wrong, it's the guys that overcome that failure 
Mm-hmm. And that's what those guys, it was always about pride and passion for the job. And then that pretty much, I think if you get those two ingredients and, and if you can add self-motivation mm-hmm. and you've got it made, you don't have to be an officer. And, uh, for the rest of my career, I really didn't have to be an officer. I just kind of, um, I was there. I, I certainly, you know, we drilled a lot, trained a lot, still made a lot of fires just in relation to the number of fires made throughout the city. But um, once you set, once that standard is there, guys just become self, so self-driven and motivated that they just suck you in. And uh, it's just part. I mean, that's why I, I always had, like I said, outstanding crews, except for the nine years I was at 25s. And that it was just almost impossible to come up out of that reputation of being a, a hard officer. Okay. You, you know, you don't have to be a hard officer when you're guys that do the job. Right. So, right. You know. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So at what point in your career did, did it, did it hit you where you're like, you know what, I'm going to go up for, a company officer's position. Yeah. Well, look, can I back back to when it, uh, the chauffeur rank yeah, is a tested sure. position. Okay. Hey, uh, I, I didn't know anything better. And I got in, uh, at station seven and guys, they gave a test every year and you had to be in at, you had to be at any rank two years in order to test for the next high promotion. Okay. Minute I was a firefighter for two years, the guys were just hounding me about study, 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 promote, promote, promote. And I studied. And uh, now, hey, I was raised up in East, I'm an East Texas hick. I'm not a rocket scientist. And, uh, but I, I came out good on the test and got promoted. And it's the one thing in my career I wish I hadn't done because I missed so many good fires by being. A driver, no, that's that's not wrong. I drove a pumper engine 46 for a year, and then I was a truck chauffeur at sevens. But uh, I promoted too quick. I didn't have enough experience as a firefighter rank, even though we made lots of fires. Um, but then I was a chauffeur, uh, drove uh, Charles Barr, incredible senior captain, um, and had incredible crew at sevens. Again, made lots of fires, and – I got shamed into studying for captain. I hate to say that, but <laughs> in both worlds, the way our, our uh, shift worked out, I got to ride up in the captain rank about once every three days that we worked. Okay. And so I got to make lots of fires riding as an acting captain, and I got to make lots of fires driving ladder seven, which my job was to go to the roof, cut holes, and then go inside and open up with the man that rode on the right side. Um, and so I just kind of got shamed into studying for captain really wasn't that motivated to be a captain. Um, but I studied hard and came out and got promoted and went to the new shift at station 25. And, and, uh, that, I believe me, that was a, uh, that was an eye opener that I was shocked. So, but I escaped it nine years later, got to a good station and then rode the rest of my career out following great crews. Okay. Okay. So I have a question for you. Shoot. I uh, heard that you had a thing called the wheel of drills. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes, I did. 
And it had a uh, hundred and one things on it. It had a hundred and ten. Hundred and ten. A hundred and ten. Okay, can you talk yeah. about how that came about? Hey, well, I was man, I was working one Thanksgiving day at Station Forty Six, and hey, we drilled every day, but I let the guys off on Thanksgiving day, and uh, I was I was going nuts. I couldn't. I always had to be doing something. Okay. And so I went out to the station and found a garbage can lid off the metal trash cans. Okay. And God said, Hey, put a spinner on it. And, and I, I went to my office and I made this trash can into, uh, I put a spinner on it. I made out of a piece of metal and a screw. And I, and I wrote, I, it was a list of the, on the, can it just had numbers and if you landed on that number i had a list then of what the drill was and uh hey it grew it grew from that to where then it was uh, 110 hydraulic questions 110 territory locations okay. Okay. and uh, uh i made a nicer board uh eventually and uh the guys i left that everybody wanted my wheel of drill when i finally retired and so i can't remember who got the garbage can lid but the nicer one gets left at station seven okay but but it it it, it kind of you know whenever the the conditions didn't warrant going out laying hose or throwing ladders or something it was a good break we could do it around the table between runs mm -hmm. and uh, guys liked it it was a challenge uh, the th the one disappointment I had was one of the questions on there was pick your favorite captain. And I worked at a big house, so <laughs> there was a captain on the engine, and there was a cat. Now, actually, I was a captain on the engine when I made that wheel of drills, and so there was a senior captain on the truck, and then a captain, and, and I had that question, and nobody ever hit it ever. Okay. Okay. So nobody. I. But anyway, it was a. It was a it was a good deal. I mean, it worked out good. Guys loved it, and uh, it was a challenge, you know. So right, right, okay. Um, do you have any 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 family members that are on Houston today currently? No, no, I had none before and none after. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. So during your time there, what what kept you positive and continued loving the job? The, the passion that was instilled in me day one at Station 7. Okay. It, I think as long as you have passion, which drives action, and you take pride in what you do, and uh, I think the rest is, it, it just kind of, you're on cruise control. Um uh, once the standard is set, and and that again on that nine years at twenty fives, it, it just it was a continu continuous revolving door. Every time guys could transfer out, they transferred out. Nobody wanted to transfer in, so you only got people that were forced there. And you know how that works. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you could never get the guys that had. You could never instill passion. And they, do you are you familiar with the ninety five five rule? No, no. Go ahead okay, and I teach about it. Uh, uh, well, whenever I go out and teach. Okay. 95% uh, of any profession are just there to collect a paycheck. Okay. I think about going to try to get your car fixed and 
or hire somebody to do something, you know what I'm talking about. You have a better job of finding somebody that doesn't care about the quality of their work. Mm -hmm. 5% are passionate about what they do. Uh, And so the 5% are like a magnet. They draw the 5%. I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. Good guys only want to work around other good guys that are passionate. Right. and the 95 percenters want nothing to do with going to a station that wants you to run inside burning buildings and climb up on roofs and cut holes. They're there to collect a paycheck. Then it, then it, hey, now, let me back up. This may not be your department. I don't know. In Houston, we're, we're huge, almost four, or had almost 4,000 firefighters. It pertained, but I know sometimes guys get offended and they say, well, that's not my crew. And I'm not talking about crews. Our departments, if you if you work in a department where the entire department is five percenters, count yourself lucky. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. But Houston, in a large department, there's so much area for guys to hide. They put on the uniform and then they they work through and get a retirement and they never do the job to the quality that the civilians and the other firefighters, you know, uh, deserve. Uh and so uh, 5%ers just motivate and, and draw in other 5%ers. And it's, it's awesome because when you're in that position, the, then the word gets out. Then the word gets out, and you don't have to worry about the guys that don't fit coming to your station and transferring in because they want anything else than to go work with those 5%ers. Right. Okay. All right. I like that. I like that. Um, so what, what subjects do you teach? Uh, well, name anything but EMS. <laughs> <laughs> I was never even an EMT. I was a highly trained ECA, took eight hours, but uh, I was never even an EMT. So although I made tons of medical calls over my career, so you could probably hit me with a couple I could get right, but uh, hey, I teach ventilation, hose ops, pump ops, uh, forcible entry. Uh, I've got a whole slew of stuff. I mean, I was in 41 years, so I better be able to do and have experience. I don't teach. I don't teach, and I don't write about anything that I don't do myself or haven't done myself. I don't. Uh, it's just my opinions. I'm on Facebook and. Uh, I write posts for firefighters and uh, it's all about stuff. My experience is so it may not fit a lot of places, but it's my experience. If it works for somebody, then good. But uh, that's all I, you know, I only teach what I did and what I know that works. Okay. 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 Um, So back when you were on Houston, truck companies were truck companies and engines were engines. Is that how it operated? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But now there's no doubt uh, primarily truck crews did truck work and pumpers engines did engine work. But when I was on 25s, they call, they called me in to cut a hole and we had to be able to go do that. And the okay. truck engine, you know, if they got to be able to get on a line, they got to be able to do that too. But primarily you have an assigned task and on the truck, you know, it's uh, you, ventilation, and search and forcible entry. Of course, the engines better be able to do forcible entry. Um, and then the engine, you know, water supply and 
get in there and fight the fire and find victims too. So it, yeah, it's a, it's a sign. We have, it's almost embarrassing when I think back how many people we had show up on a fire ground. And then I find these departments that run with two people on an apparatus. Uh, I wanted to cry if I had less than 24 firefighters on scene after the fire was out time to overhaul, you know, and, so we were spoiled, but it's a big department. We have, you know, a lot of resources. Okay. Uh, back then, what did you get on a, on a box, on a, on a, on a house fire? Okay. Back when? We're back, back when you were on. But back, that was 41 years, so it changed from time to time. Okay. Uh, can I go back what we got back in the old days? Yeah, sure. It, there's a key point here that I hope I can make somewhere – during the day. Um, yeah, that's fine. When I came in, um, we were, well, first off, we worked a split shift. We worked three 10-hour days followed by three 14-hour nights and, uh, and three days off. And the, the probably the primary reason for that was the number of fires. You just made so many fires, and so it was a split shift. Uh, but then we, while I was a firefighter rank at Sevens, we went to a 24-hour shift. But back in those days, if we had a one-story house fire, we got uh, a chief, three pumpers, and a truck. Okay. If it was a two-story, we got four engines and a truck and a chief. And that was it. Uh, now, I worked in, in Midtown. We made uh, downtown in the medical center in Houston, which were lots of – so we made high-rise fires, too, and that was a different uh, – dispatch uh but primarily for residential um we got either three or four pumpers a truck and a chief and in the mid 80s about 1985 uh, oh let me back up here let's say for instance we had a two-story house which we made lots of old all wood two-story houses back in those days if we had a two-story house uh Every engine would be told to bring their water with them, which means bring, catch your plug, lay into the fire, and each pumper was an, an attack engine. Mm -hmm. So we would have four engines pumping on a house fire, and everybody pulled two lines, primarily inch and a half. Maximum flow was 125 back then. Uh, and we would overwhelm these house fires. Okay. And, uh, and it worked, but now there's no doubt when you got through, you couldn't even see asphalt from all the cotton on the road. All okay. Night. And so in the mid eighties, they came and said, what we were doing was overkill and we were going to go to this new system. Uh, we didn't have incident command back then. The chief would just tell somebody a couple, you knew what to do. There was hardly any talk with the chief unless it was going to be a multiple. Okay. Uh, so mid eighties, they changed and we went from, four attack engines to one. And that this is the pendulum swinging, Danny, and, and it's going to have consequences in about 10 years. So we go from overwhelming these fires to just getting by. And mm -hmm. we go from eight attack lines flowing up. You know, if you had 125 gallons a minute time, they looking at a thousand gallons. We beat these fires into submission we didn't have, we never had May days. We didn't have lost firefighters. If you, you had so many lines in a fire, if one busted, it was no big deal. You okay. know, you, and if you had a firefighter get lost, he was only one room away from another crew. So 
what we were doing was working and we were overwhelming fires, but our department decided it was overkill. So we went to doing less and it's never good. Absolutely. And so from, from a redundant, redundant system, we went to all of our eggs in one basket. Uh, that a lot of things changed. They said, you know, that one attack engine, he could pump on as many lines as he could, and then you could bring somebody else in. But firemen, and, and this isn't all firemen, but firemen are invariably lazy, and they want to do less. They want to put less hose on the ground. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have to go pick up and go back to the station and wash hose. Mm-hmm. And so when you give it to them as an option, hey, I, once they implemented it, I don't think I ever saw eight lines on another fire unless it was a multiple. Okay. Uh, so, so we did less and less, and 10... Almost 10 years later, uh, a buddy of mine, Ruben Lopez, incredible firefighter, but he was a volunteer with the Houston Volunteer Firefighters. And I got him to come ride with me all the time on engine 25 because, like I told you, I had nobody I could push in a burning building. And Ruben was a good fireman. Uh, But in uh, December 4th, 1996, he got killed on a fire we made where we had a lady trapped and the uh, long story, a lot of things, you know how it happens with fatalities. It's a lot of things go bad all at one time. Yep. And, but uh, invariably we, we left Ruben in the front yard under a tarp, leaving seven uh, kids and a wife at home uh, because our department did less. And whenever our engine truly failed and our lines blew in two and the house flashed over and Ruben couldn't get out, he died. And uh, so invariably, uh, the, the, my department still hasn't changed. They still do the same thing. But certainly my districts uh, where I worked, we changed. We went back and looked at what could have been done different. Uh, Houston uns- had gone 105 years and never killed a single firefighter inside of burning building. 105 years from a, as a paid department, never killed a single firefighter. And then Ruben died in 96. Now he wasn't a paid man. He was a volunteer. So but back then, back then you had volunteers as well yeah, as paid, but it was, they just rode, uh, and, uh, they, they helped out. Okay. But, uh, it was primarily a paid department. I mean, they, I think there were only like 20 volunteers in, in their department, but, <sighs> Um, I'm trying to remember where I was going with that. Um, Oh, oh, anyway, Houston still doesn't, they they still got one engine on, on a fire. And when something goes wrong, all your eggs were in one basket, but oh, Ruben died in 96 and that opened the floodgates. And today I think Houston is at 14 paid firefighters, all killed inside burning buildings, 14. Four on one fire. Oh, we killed two. Uh, let's see. We we had two firefighters killed uh, on Valentine's Day. Two killed on Easter uh, night, uh, and uh, then we lost four all one fire. Hurt nineteen bad, and one another one died four years later from that fire. That the fires have changed. That what what we did back in the old days worked for our kind of fires 
But then we went to this easier, kinder, you know, do less, and the fires changed. What's burning changed. And we, my department didn't change, but my districts did. We implemented, we, we had two engines operating on every fire. One is, you know, the primary attack engine. The, the second is a RIT engine, both with water supplies. We pulled lots of, we had minimum GPM flow on all of our hand lines. You couldn't flow less than 200 and go in on inch and three quarter. And uh, you can't, you can't do less not on the fire ground. Fires are always trying to overwhelm you. You know, the minute you pull up the fire, he's got all everything he needs. See? Right. And uh, so that's what happened when we did less. And it's just sad on a big department. It, it's like trying to steer a battleship with no rudder. You can't turn it. You know, you just have to, you have to handle your, station your crew and your district and that's about as far as you have any real leverage mm -hmm. but that's what we did and that's why i always had incredible crews because surrounded ourselves with other good crews in the district you know that took care of business and took care of each other on the fire ground so right right okay in your opinion what key elements or factors are needed to make a good firefighter oh I've said it multiple times, passion and pride. Hey, if, if you wait, once you instill the passion in somebody, it, it, it's on remote control. I mean, and, unless something happens and I, and now there, there are guys and I'm thinking back here while we're talking, there are guys that, that came to my stations and other good stations that, that made it for a while, but they couldn't keep it up. You okay. know, they just couldn't, they couldn't deal with the run volume and the, you know, they, they had something else in mind. So uh, it's sad because they, they would do a good job and then they would just kind of lose. But once you get the guys that truly are that passion's burning in them and they have pride in what they do, you mm -hmm. can, they're not leaving unless they promote. And, mm -hmm. and then they make great. And that's what I'm so, I look back now, uh, I'm almost four years after leaving, and so many of my firefighters now are officers, and they have great crews, and and it's just it's a it's contagious if you can get it to buy in, and uh, and it's it's awesome when it, when everybody loves what they do and takes pride in what they do, and uh, again, I didn't have to be an officer. Uh, not, not once I had good crews, I just had to kind of just hang around and make sure, you know, that I showed up for runs. They were right. self, self police and self-sufficient and, uh, and we're always starving to learn. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, you mentioned your shift work. It was, you said, uh, three days and four nights when 24 hours was implemented. How did how did you feel about that? Like, how did the department feel? Because you said you were taking a lot of runs back then. Yeah, well, a lot of fires, not runs, but lots of fires. I mean, case in point, engine seven back in those days might make five runs a day, but three of them be working fires. Okay. And so uh, I remember when we went to to the twenty four hour shift. My officers talking to us about, hey, there may be some tough days because 
the number of fires you would make, there wouldn't be that relief coming in at three mm-hmm. thirty in the afternoon or the next morning at six thirty. Um, and so um, there were a, there were a few days, but I think somebody must have known more than we did because the fires invariably every year just got to be less and less. We, where I worked, still made a high number of fires for Houston. But I kept a log from the day I made ca- – my captain told me as a brand-new rookie before I ever made my first fire, he said, keep a list of your fires. Well, I didn't do it, and after the first tour, I was so many fires behind, I never kept a log. But then when I made captain, I kept one, and uh, uh, and uh, it was pretty neat going back on it. Uh, but – when you looked at the log, the only years that we made more fires than the previous year was if you had an arsonist come into your district. Okay. Other than that, the fires just kept declining, declining, declining. Okay. So, All right. Um, in your opinion, what do you think the American Fire Service can improve on? Oh, man, quit using comfort as a de- deciding factor on fighting fires. I, I'm I'm blown away at how how many departments pump less. They're looking for less and less nozzle pressure, less and less GP. It's just it's crazy to me. And maybe and I'm gonna tell you uh, the big giant motivator is dead firefighters. I do everything, even even though I'm retired, I still spend almost every day thinking about what can I do, what can I pass on to keep firemen alive on the fire ground, on today's fire ground, which is totally changed from the fires I came in 40, now 45 years ago. Um, and so it's back to the... I told you what happened whenever my department started doing less. Mm-hmm. Now we get... Now there's a total of 15 dead firefighters in Houston, one volunteer and 14 paid, and they haven't changed anything about what they do as far as the the number of lines they pull or the number of tack engines. They're not doing more. And today's fires are so much more unpredictable. I can remember almost every flashover. I I clearly remember the first time I ever saw a flashover. And probably the whole time I was a, a, a firefighter or a chauffeur, uh, which was almost total of 13 years, 13, yeah, 13, 14 years. I don't know. Anyway, I can almost remember every flashover we ever had, which weren't a lot. But then when about the time I made captain in 91, we started getting burnt more, uh, things having closer calls and things going wrong on the fire ground. And I, I wasn't smart enough to know what was happening, but the, the contents inside the same old houses was changing. You know, people would come in and take out their, their old Class A combustible stuff and bring in all these plastics and all. And, and not to mention today's house has 400% more mm-hmm. contents than it did back in the, you know, 70s, 80s. Um, and so what, what what burns in the house burns different than it did. Uh, flashovers happen, and boy, the smoke is, you know, back in those days, carbon monoxide was your big killer. Now it's hydrogen cyanide and all the other chemicals. Flashovers back in those days 
where you know happened at 1100 degrees today they happen sometimes less than 500 depending on what's burning and and it just amazes me and I, and again i'm not talking for all departments i'm only talking about what my knowledge i go around and try to teach and it's just consistently i see guys striving to do less striving for for less nozzle pressure i mean that's like your knockout punch uh, striving to you know, I've heard officers over and over. T- when I tell them what we would do as far as pressure we pumped and what our, our mindset was, they would tell me, well, they like their line to be comfortable. That just floored me. I always thought about comfort is after we overwhelmed the fire and got to go out and take off 73 pounds of bunker gear and stuff, not comfort on the hose line. But so that I, I just I don't know. You, that was a simple question, and there's not a, a simple answer for it, but I just don't think firefighters are applying the live or die to what they decide to do. Like, you know, if you apply living or dying, you're going to make different decisions. Mm-hmm. And coming in thinking I'm going to flow less water or, or I, I want my line to be comfortable when the fire shows up and it's all around you and behind you and your, your life literally hinges on being overwhelmed the fire you're not set up for um and so many of these officers would tell me that they would call for more water if things went wrong that that's a dream world that's that's hollywood that's how many years do you have in danny uh i'm on my 16th year with with my department 16 so you got lots of experience so you know 16 yeah i mean yeah. It, it, we don't have as many fires as other organizations but i've been to a decent number of fires for sure yeah so it just doesn't the, the fires don't take hostages you know you've got to go in and overwhelm them and, and when things go wrong man we zip them up in body bags and we have great marches and funerals and it sucks Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes me angry and I can feel myself getting on my soapbox. It does. It infuriates me that my own department, that I could never do anything to convince them to do more. I could my districts, okay. but I couldn't, I could not change my department. Uh, I used to teach newly promoted officers and they gave me uh, eight hours to teach five subjects and one of the subjects was ventilation. And I would have these guys and they would, t- they wanted me to teach May Day, a, a writ rapid in- intervention team, uh, forcible entry, not, not forcible entry. I'm trying to remember. And, anyway, every subject I had, I would tell the guys first thing in the morning, it was an eight hour class. And I would tell them, hey, I'm going to teach ventilation because if I can teach you to ventilate early and efficiently, mm-hmm. And effectively, then you're not going to have May days. You're not going to need your writ team. Oh, search was one of them. You're not going to have trouble doing search. But yet, uh, about five years before I retired, UL and NIST did a, a skewed study on ventilation and came up with that ventilation was bad. And my department bought in hand over, I mean, they were all over because it, it fit their narrative. Let's not put guys on a roof, you know. They don't believe, I believe in the fan and on, you know, vertical ventilation or horizontal with the fan. Uh, But they went for it. And uh, so I got laid off from teaching newly promoted officers 
And then they started teaching them ventilation was bad. And then several years later, NIST and UL said, oh, we made a mistake. We never applied water on our drills. Well, that's not the fire service. Right. We ventilate, we put water, you know? Right. And so it still, it ruined the last five years of my career. They canned me from teaching ventilation. And uh, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, I still, I'm passionate. I love, I love great firemen and I stay connected with them and, and, uh, I still try to pass on as much experience that I had that worked. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, to this day, do you still go by sevens? Oh yeah. Do I still go by there? Yeah. 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 In fact, I'm going, I may, uh, I'm going Monday. Uh, but but when I go into Houston, I go by about four different stations. Okay, you know where where my old crew now they're officers. Uh -huh. uh, I got uh, one one that's a chief called me the other day and wants me to come teach ventilation to his guys. So they still pull me out of mothballs every now and then. And I went, <laughs> uh, I went by to see one of my former rookies that's a captain. Uh, at station 34 and one of my former drivers used to drive me on engine 46. He's a chief there. And I went by to see him about two months ago and we made a house fire. I made it in my pickup truck and I kind of, my, my, my head went out on me. I was, I was humping slack and tossing kinks and giving orders. And it, I did these firemen looking at like, who's this old fat guy that's give, telling me to do this or that. And it's like, Hey, you know, you can't take the fire service out of me. So Awesome. Awesome. Now with, with, I mean, most firemen know, you know, the, the state of Houston fire department right now isn't the greatest, but if there's one bright light about it, it's um, at least for me, it's listening to chief Mo Davis. Yeah. He seems to be a very passionate, one of those chiefs you'd love to be in his district. He's in busy district too, district 68. Yeah, me and Mo, he used to be uh, our paramedic uh, chauffeur. Okay. And, uh, but we made lots of fires together at 46s. Okay. Uh, but yeah, good, good firefighter. Good. Actually, when I promoted, um, I think Mo's the one that took my place on Ninja 46. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, he's a good officer. Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say for for any any newcomers? Because you know the current state of, of firefighting right now, we're hiring so many young individuals, individuals that are coming straight out of high school, uh, twenty one. That's really that that have never had a job before. Like this is their first job. Is there anything, any advice you want to give them, or anything you just want to let the listeners know? Yeah. Well. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that I'm seeing in Houston are these young guys. So many of them have no uh, no manual labor experience, and so they they come into a blue collar profession, and they they don't know how to use an axe or a shovel. And uh, so uh, I know that that it's possible to take those guys because I had a bunch of them and. You can turn around, but you got to go back. Officers, I'll say this to the officers with young guys coming in. You, you, you can't jump forward into advanced training. You've got to go back sometimes to basics, like what a flathead and a Phillips head screwdriver is. I mean, 
I, I had a 30 year old rookie that had never put a socket on a socket wrench. Uh, but hey, he today he's a captain. And okay. so those things are, you can recover from them, but you certainly, I had to learn to, to take a step back and re- find out where my crew struggled, my new guys, and then go back and kind of be that father figure to them and bring them up on things that I grew up in the country. So you were taught, you know, at nine years old, you're driving tractors and stuff. It's just different if you don't grow up in the country. Uh, but young guys learn as much as you can and, and strive to try to find the, those firefighters that are on fire for what they do. They have passion for it because even if you don't have the passion at, at that moment, it's contagious. And so, um, Surround yourself with good, good people. And sometimes, uh, you know, sadly, sometimes great potential firefighters don't get that good station right off when they get hired. Mm-hmm. And, and they end up with the guy, the nice captain that wants to, you know, doesn't want to train and drill. But that's not that's not caring about you or, or the civilians. And so pick up on that and, and you have to ride it out. And as long as you you know, I don't know different departments, but, but while you're riding out that difficult time, find out where the good crews are. The guys, that, not the guys that cuss their officers, but the guys that they, they may complain about how much drilling and training they do, but they do with a gleam in their eye because they know their job and they're proud of the job they do. Those are the guys you want to try to, to uh, pick up as mentors and then try to find that station that, and sadly, I mean, there's still lots of potential great firefighters, even, I mean, in Houston right now. And, and the, the number of great stations is small. And so they, they all want to go to the great station mm-hmm. with great crews and there aren't enough holes for them. And so um, I told you about Ruben Lopez, my friend, friend getting killed. That was back in 96. His uh, youngest son just got on with Houston um, back in January, and he's at Station 51, which is one of the stations in Mo District's district, but he's on a different ship. Okay. And uh, he's fixing to have to go find another station. There's just not – I mean, he's made a lot of fires, so he's got quite a bit of experience in that short period of time, but he's going to have to find another station, and I'm going to try to help him, you know, pick the best one. but. Uh, it's, 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 what do you want out of life? You want to be proud of the job you do. You want to be able to look your family and civilians in the face and tell them you're a firefighter, the kind you'd want to show up at your house if your family was trapped. (coughs) Or do you want just a job where you collect a paycheck, you know? Um, yeah, it, it, all, it all goes back to that 95.5 rule you, you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, and, you know, yesterday when you and I talked about or, or communicated about question number two, I, I, I broke my very own rule. I always tell guys, like, you know, say – and I know I know from what I've heard about you, you're the 5%. I, don't, I, I, don't know I appreciate guys, it. But I know that you're the 5%. Or guys really respect you and the job you do. And so that, that is itself, 
again, I, th- I forgot where I was headed. Oh, 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 I know. I always tell guys, if somebody says something bad about what they do and you're the 5%, you got to you gotta pick and put that person that's criticizing you, that firefighter, what, is he a 95 or is he a 5%er? If he's a 95%, you got to let it roll off your back because he's not going to ever walk in the shoes, the boots you walk in. But if he's the 5%er, you need to listen. Maybe maybe what we're doing is, is not right. Maybe there's a better way to do it, or maybe it's correction we need. Sometimes some of the 5%ers are over-aggressive. You know, they they, uh, they they think with a different part of their body instead of their brain. It's a day that the brain's more important than anything on the fire ground. Um, but when you asked, we, we communicated about question number two, I let, I let the 95% rule my judgment because I, I know how horrible the outlook is from the 95%ers in Houston mm-hmm. because that, I don't know how long it's been since I know when I left, it was 11 years without a pay raise, but, uh, but it's not the 5%ers. The 5%ers are there. They're not there for, a, for money. They're not. They're there to to serve the civilians, to do it to the best of their ability, and and they still they train and drill, and they're proud about what they do. One of my my former firefighters, his crew pulled a man out of a burning house the other day, pulled him out alive, um, and so I fell into that. I let the ninety five percent rule what I was going to tell you when I told you let's forget about two. Right. But it's not. There's still the five percenters there, and they're still at the same stations that they always were. The busy houses that make the most fires, and the guys. It, it, once again, once you get that five percent in there, it's like a force field. It it repels the ninety five, and so it just draws. Unfortunately. There just aren't enough of them to, to get all the great young potential firefighters to come in and work full time at that station. They may go there and train and drill, and that's great. But, man, sometimes it's a long road to get a good station as a permanent man, you know. So Right, right, right. Are you still uh, – you, you obviously stated the, the firefighter that uh, – the volunteer firefighter that you lost. You Are, are you still in contact with – you must be because you know that his youngest son is now a – Houston firefighter. Yeah, but I, I've got to say, I, I went 25 years with no contact with him. Okay. Yeah, it was it was a difficult time in everybody's life, and and uh, after Ruben got killed, uh, I spent uh, eight months working toward getting crews. We, we rebuilt their house, and we did a lot of things, and so I was every day but Sunday, I was at Ruben's house doing something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it just it got to a point where I, I just had to separate myself. My family was suffering. Gotcha. And I stepped aside. And it's one of those deals where I stepped aside and then never found a good spot to walk back in. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Joey, his youngest son, reached out through our fire department chaplain to me. And uh, hey, it's awesome, man. Uh, we you know, we communicate regularly and. Uh, I try to give him as much advice as I can. I'm fixing to give him more. He's fixed to get off probation, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to confuse him about what Houston wants and what the right way is. But he's fixing to get it. Gotcha. But he's a big, strapping, young, tough firefighter like his dad was, 
and the guys at Station 51 love him, but he's going to have to find another hole. So that's sad. Yeah. No, no, that, I like I like how you stated that. You like you wanted him to get off probation first, and then you're going to teach him the way the way it needs to be. And I and I that I totally get that. That 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 message resounds with me 100. percent Yeah. Unfortunately, so many of my guys, I, I teach one thing, and then promotional exams ask for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh so so many of my guys i have to say hey you got that promotional exam you got to read what that book says and that's the answer not what we really do on the fire ground you know right. so right uh, you got to keep them separated but awesome well cap it's been uh this this has been fun uh i i love being able to talk shop with you that you were able to relive uh some moments and pass down knowledge to the new generation of firefighters. So I thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this. Sure. Now, are we over? Uh, we, we will be here shortly. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, do you want to uh, add something to the lit for the listeners? Yeah. Yeah. Go do, ahead. Hey, do, do, do you know about D or do you defog your mask? Uh, with soap? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, okay. Well, there's a, here's the thing, Dan. There's lots of guys wherever I go around and teach and I ask, and there's always so many guys never even knew it. And so many firefighters retire and never knew that you could defog your mask. Uh And so uh, I would ask the guys out there that know about, and and, and soap is just, soap soap is, I, I teach that because it's, it's always somewhere. It's at its fire station. It's on the fire ground, right. but they're, they're commercial products that work, but, uh, soap is always available. Yeah. And, uh, so guys, if you know about it and you ask, because that's the difference between living and dying, uh, being able to see, not being able to see, there's a LODD report on an 18 year old firefighter that fell off a three story roof and died. And his, uh, officer knew that he noticed that his mask was fogged up. And so, uh, you know, I teach to defog the inside and outside. Outside really helps when you're in there actively fighting the fire. But uh, I didn't mean to, to hijack your. No, you're fine. Yeah. You're fine. But, no, you're good. Uh, good. Yeah. But I, I just want to say thank you for for uh, for dropping some gems and and speaking the truth on the fire service. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And thank you for what you do. Thank you. If any of the listeners out there are or know of a great firefighter who embodies the principles of being a great communicator, goal-oriented, hardworking, humble, passionate, and professional, regardless of rank, career, or volunteer, contact me at studentofthegamefirepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay focused, stay committed, and stay safe.